Good evening, everyone. Welcome to RUF. My name is Elliot Everett. I'm the campus minister here. If I haven't met you, as always, I would love to meet you. So come say hey and tell me your name. Um, we have been in Paul's letter to the Philippians this semester, and we press on. Wow, I didn't even mean for that to coincide with the title of the sermon tonight. Joy and pressing on. I guess I've just had pressing on on the brain today. But we have especially been looking at this theme that Paul keeps returning to no matter what subject uh, he turns to, it all comes back to joy that in the gospel, there is a real, solid, ultimate, tangible joy that is ours in Christ, that is not determined, is not denied, is not affected by circumstances. And tonight, what Paul wants to tell us is about the joy in pressing on. So let us read here. I'm going to actually start in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 3, um, which we covered last week and then launch into the rest of the chapter. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have seen in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray before we look into this. Father, we do come now as we uh, inch ever so closer to the end of a semester. And we need to hear something about what it could mean to press on. Would would we not only find... um, just an exhortation to press on, but would we find here what we think Paul says is a joy to be found and to be had in pressing on. We pray that you would give us that tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
don't know how many of y'all keep up with the, uh, the Mega Millions lottery. I don't. But I just happened to hear a week or two ago, I guess I don't know how many, how many weeks it had been, that it had surpassed over $1.5 billion. And I think, in fact, the winning no- there was a winning number um, that was purchased in South Carolina just seven or eight days ago. To claim over, let me say it again, $1.5 billion. Now, I just want you to, can you imagine just for a second what it would be like to look at your bank account and see $1.5 billion? Can you imagine trying to even think of the ways in which you would even begin to spend $1.5 billion? <laughs> Am I driving it home? Yeah. Billion dollars. In a sense, um, I think that's what Paul told us uh, in the last few verses that we read in uh, Philippians 3 verses 8 through 11 last week, that in the gospel, there is a sense in which you can say when we come to faith in this gospel and we understand who this Jesus is and what this Jesus has done and what this Jesus has secured for us, there's a sense in which you could say we have hit the infinitely uh, full spiritual jackpot. It's an infinite jackpot, spiritually. Paul says it like this in Ephesians, and in his opening verses of Ephesians. He says this, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, now get this, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I don't know how many spiritual blessings are in the heavenly places, but Paul says in Jesus we have all of them. That's, that's an astounding statement. And again, can you even begin to imagine what it would be like to tap in to that wealth that is ours? So Paul laid out, that's what Paul was laying out for us last week, the riches of the gospel. And he contrasted that with what before Christ he thought were riches, his own righteousness, the ways in which uh, if we tried to compare our confidence in the flesh with him, uh, he would smoke us. But when it comes to knowing Jesus, he said he counted all of that as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, of being found in Him, in knowing that He has His righteousness, in knowing Him more, and in knowing the power of His resurrection. All these things. And so in a sense, we agree with Paul and we know that what Paul is trying to tell us, we need to know that the gospel is so much more than just forgiveness. We need to know that the gospel is so much more than just a blank slate. We're not brought into a neutral state with God through Jesus. No, we're made righteous. We are righteous in His sight. What God sees in Jesus, God sees in us. Um, We're not just pardoned in the gospel. No, God tells us we're precious. God didn't just decide He was going to tolerate us. No, He determined that He would treasure us. We're not just excused. We're actually embraced. And so when we understand, when we even scratch the surface of trying to understand the truths of that, the next question is logical. Well, what next? What next? Well, Paul says he presses on. And in pressing on, he calls us to press on. And he says there's a joy to be found in pressing on when we press the glorious riches of the gospel into our lives. So what does this look like? Well, he lays out three things, I think. 
at least three things. Uh, a reason for pressing on, the direction of pressing on, and the fuel for pressing on. So let's look at this. The first one here is the reason for pressing on. And you look at verse 12 there. He gives his reason. Look, these glorious riches are true, but I am not all the way there. I'm not perfect. I've not obtained. There's a fullness to be had in Jesus. There's a fullness uh, to being to knowing Jesus. But I'm not there yet. I'm on the road with you. There's, there's not perfection in me. I still have a long way to go. And again, go back to the jackpot analogy. It would take you a very long time to even plumb the depths of the spending power of $1.5 billion, would it not? Uh, it would take you a long time to plumb the depths of that spending power. And so in one sense, that's kind of what Paul sa- is saying. If you think about it, it's kind of Paul, uh, surprising that Paul would say this. That His reason here is, look, I'm not perfect. There are things yet for me to do. I press on. I need to press on. There, I've not, I'm not someone who's arrived yet in any sense. You know, And it's surprising that he would say this because... He listed for us. He had an incredibly impressive resume before coming to Christ. You want to put some confidence in the flesh. No one can match me. But think about him after Christ. He has a pretty impressive resume after Christ. He was an apostle. His conversion involved Jesus uh, meeting with him face to face. Um, he's been a church planner. He's gone on missionary journeys. He's healed the sick. He even raised a dude from the dead. Okay. He survived a lot of hardships. And so on the one hand, that might be discouraging because it's like, well, if Paul hasn't arrived, what hope is there uh, for me? Uh, lowly, little old Mississippi State fan, me. Um, but on the other hand, I think it should be encouraging because what he's saying is, my Savior is so beautiful. And there is so much worth in Him and in knowing Him and in walking with Him that what I'm telling you is that I have barely scratched the surface. We are fellow pilgrims on the journey of walking with Christ. I think one way to illustrate it is this. I took my family to Disney World or Disney Hell, depending on which way you look at it, um, at the beginning of October. It was fun in its own, in its own Disney way. Um, it's, it can only be so fun with four kids, let's be honest. But they had a blast. One of the cool things about Disney World is that you get a magic band, right? Have y'all seen these? It looks like a watch, and it's, you use it, it's your ticket. It's your ticket in. You get a magic band, it's got Mickey's uh, symbol on it, and you get to the park, you're in the parking lot, and you know just beyond there, right, is this whole world of wonderment. And because you're wearing that magic band, right, you get to go in. And so you tap your magic band to the little orb or whatever it's called, and you go right in. Um, But now, I want you to imagine, could you imagine even for a second getting in, like I've got my magic band, I've gotten in, they've let me in, and now I get in, I take one look around and I go, well, this was Disney World, time to go home. No one would do that, would they? What would they do? They'd look at a map. Or they'd just start walking and they'd see rides and they'd see shops and they'd see food and they'd just keep going and going and going and going again. And that's part of the con is they, yeah, anyway, that's a different point. But never once would it cross your mind that merely having and wearing the magic band is all there is to Disney. No, 
There's a whole wide world of crazy and expensive things when you're a father of four. Let me make the illustration a little bit more personal. Imagine your wedding day. Okay? Your wedding day, you've exchanged rings, you've exchanged vows, you've had the kiss, it's done. Now I want you to imagine for a second one spouse saying, hey, we are married now. Hey, I'm going to the beach for a week, so I guess I'll see you when I get home, right? No, that's not how it goes. At least you hope not. No, you begin a new life together. You go off maybe for a week and you share a room together. You share a bed together. You share a bathroom together. This is marriage, people. You then come home and you share a house together. And you begin and you live into this new life, this new reality of husband and wife. I think that's what Paul is talking about when he says, Look, I'm not perfect. I've got Jesus. You've got Jesus. But let's press on. Let's live with Jesus. Let's press on to live into that reality. Press on to press into the gospel. To see it touch every area of our lives. Press on to know Him more and more and more. And what I'm willing to bet is the more you get to know Him, the more you'll realize it will never be enough. Press on. That's His reason for pressing on. But let's look at the the directions here. The directions of pressing on. Uh, And there's a lot of directions mentioned, and they kind of all come at us there, verse 13 and and forward. Forget what lies behind, strain forward, press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. Behind, forward, toward, upward. All these directional words. The Christian life, in other words, is anything but stagnant. You don't become a Christian and then just sit fat and happy. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is a movement and it is a movement in directions. And I just want to think of it in two different ways. There's horizontal and there's vertical. Horizontal, the way he says this, look at what he says. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward. We'll take that first part there, forgetting what lies behind. Now, Paul cannot literally mean you just get amnesia about your past. That's not what he's talking about. Um, He's not saying, like, take your brokenness, your heartache, maybe abuse that you've suffered. Just forget about it. It's not what Paul's saying. It's not a suck it up or or a rainbow-colored glasses um, type of worldview. Nor can he mean forget, let's just forget past sin as if there's no need for repentance uh, or no need for reconciliation. Best way I can think about illustrating this is the when you, you know, I like sports a little too much. But when you look at, like, good sports teams... No matter what sport, what makes a good sports team or makes good players or makes good coaches is usually their ability to forget. I would love to be a football coach, but this is why I would never, I would have a heart attack during my first game. I can't forget anything. We score one touchdown and I think it's the best thing that's ever happened. We incomplete one pass and I think we're the worst team ever in history, right? But the best teams, the best coaches, the best players, they have this ability to forget. They win a big game, but the reason they go on with consistent success is because their, their ability to leave it behind. I got an, you know, it's that whole one day at a time cliche. Yeah, it was a great win. Or they lose one game, but it doesn't define them. And so you can't ever think that you've arrived and you can't ever think that you're hopeless either way. So he says, forget what lies behind, but it's in the context of straining forward. And so what he means there, I think it means, is to understand my past 
does not define and it does not control me. It's merely the starting point from which I move forward. And again, what am I moving forward to? To Jesus. And so I see the past as this context through which I now press forward into Jesus, into relationship with Him, into experiencing Him and experiencing His grace and hoping that that touches every area of my life. And I think there's two things that this ends up doing for you. When you do this, forget what lies behind, strain forward to what lies ahead. There's two things. I think in one sense, it'll guard you from self-righteousness. How would it do that? Well, you do things like this. You say, you come to college and you say, well, I never drank in high school because I was a Christian. So I'll never be tempted to do that in college. Some of you know all too well. That wasn't true. Or maybe you have kept it going, but you're really self-righteous about it. Or you say things like, well, I've never crossed the line physically with a girlfriend or boyfriend. So I'm never going to be tempted to do that. We forget what lies behind. We strain forward. I know I'm capable of anything at any moment to certain degrees. But in another way, so in a sense, two random examples, but in one sense it can guard you from self-righteousness. In another way, it can guard you from despair or self-loathing. Where you say to yourself things like, I've always had a problem finishing things that I start. So I guess I'm just always going to be a failure. I'm always going to be incomplete. I guess I can't be trusted with anything. Or you say to yourself, you know, I've always had a problem with porn, so I guess I'm never going to get over it. Or you say something like, well, he used me, so I guess that's all I'm good for. Or you say, I've always been insecure, so I guess I'm just supposed to be the punching bag for everybody. Right? There's a, there's a temptation for all of us to totalize in one direction or the other. Towards self-righteousness or towards despair and self-loathing. This helps guard us from both. Forgetting what lies behind is coming to the place that you know the past is not the sum of who you are. It's coming to the point where the past is just that. It's the past. But it's paired with straining forward to what lies ahead. It's to understand that the past is merely a starting point from which you pursue Jesus. And in pursuing Jesus, you see Him transforming you into who He designed you to be. We strain forward. We forget what lies behind it and we strain forward. The horizontal um, aspect of this. But He gives a second, I think, vertical aspect to this. And this, He fleshes out Towards the end of the chapter, the vertical, the upward call, he says it like this, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he illustrates this kind of towards the end there in verses 20 and 21, when he says our citizenship is in heaven. We await a savior from heaven also who's going to come. He's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And so the upward call then is that we are becoming and one day will be fully conformed to the image of Jesus. That is the upward call. So we're going to be moving forward on the horizontal plane. And in moving forward in Jesus, vertically we're becoming like Jesus. That's what he's doing in us. He's conforming God, conforming us to the image of His Son. And this vertical aspect is contrasting. He contrasts this, interestingly, in verses 18 and 19. We don't know who these enemies of the cross is, but 
He apparently had some personal connection with him. Maybe it was the Judaizers that we talked about last week. He had some personal connection. He tells you with tears. Maybe he's just sad that there are people that pursue their own destruction in the ways that he describes here. And so he has tears. He's not happy about it. But he says of these enemies of the cross, he says, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame and their mind, because of all that is summed up, that their mind is set on earthly things. We have this vertical upward calling. And the complete opposite of that is to be looking down here for that calling. And Paul, to the, to the contrast, he says, look, but our citizenship is in heaven. He's saying, we don't belong to those things. Look, when you, I, I went to Baton Rouge, how long ago is that? Uh, two weeks ago. And there's, you know, it's an interesting endeavor to wear something other than purple and gold in Baton Rouge on a game day, especially at night. And when you wear maroon um, in Death Valley at night during a football game, you stick out, right? You stick out. And then you run into somebody else in maroon and you just start talking like you've known each other all your life. <laughs> Because it's like, save me, please. No, um, it's not that bad. It is when our football team played as bad as they did. But you start, why do you do that? Because both of you know, you know, we don't belong here. Right? There's something about you that displays very vividly in color. You don't belong here. For the Christian, part of this upward call is that we display very vividly. We don't belong here. Now, that doesn't mean... You know, Paul is very careful in other places to say, be in the world, but not of it. Don't be of it. Don't wear the same colors. Don't go about the things uh, the way that they do. And so there's a question we can ask ourselves. How do I know that my life is trending onward and upward? How do I know if I'm tracking? How do I know if I'm pressing on correctly, moving onward and upward? Well, I think the illustration of wearing maroon and Death Valley is what it can help us there. The directions of onward and upward in the context of the gospel and the Christian life. It's important to understand those directions are diametrically opposed to the directions of the world. They're diametrically opposed to what other the way that the world lives, the directions in which they are living. To name a couple of examples to make this practical, maybe, right? When it comes to money, to deal with money on the onward and upward trajectory of the Christian life means money becomes something, one, it just becomes money. It's just money. And more than that, it becomes something to give away. Not to constantly be worried about whether and if you'll have enough of it. When it comes to the social ladder, right? We all live, whenever you come into a group of people, there's a social ladder there. Whenever you're in a society or culture, there's a social ladder that's defined by different things. Well, when you're on a social ladder, on the onward and upward trajectory of the Christian life on the social ladder is looking to the bottom and looking to lift those on the bottom up. Not trying to ensure that I'm on my way to the next rung at whatever the cost. When it comes to sexuality, this is a reason, again, why you'll see in the New Testament, why does sexuality come up so much um, 
in the New Testament as something to be watched and guarded uh, as far as pursuing Christ and following Christ. Because on the onward and upward trajectory of the Christian life, sexual, sexuality is not something to just be casually explored. It's not something to be casually explored just for the fun of it or just to discover myself or whatever the reason may be. But it's actually something sacred and worth protecting. But what's interesting is our culture can't get away from this. Our culture knows this. What is behind the Me Too movement? That sexuality is a sacred thing and to use it to the abuse of another violates something very deep. Why is it that a Supreme Court justice almost gets disqualified because of something he did at whatever age he was then? Because our culture understands, though they want to argue it in different spheres and different contexts, that it is a sacred thing. Try as our college culture might, right? It cannot get away from this truth. The college hookup is all about... the. I remember reading a book talking about the formulation of the term hookup. The whole, the whole reason that we hook up is because it's so easy to unhook, right? It's kind of, you know, it's just a thing. It doesn't, it's just, it's just sex, right? But why is it that we can get on old row or whatever and there's still the hearty har har, that was a weird term, the laugh, hearty har har, I don't know, I was going pirate there. But there's still the grin, the smirk and the laugh. As we watch the walk of shame. Why is it shameful? I thought it was casual. Our citizenship is in heaven. We don't belong to any of this. Paul says. We forget what lies behind. It doesn't control us or define us. We strain forward. We strain onward. And we strain upward to Jesus. These are the directions of pressing on in the Christian life. Finally, let's look at this. The fuel for pressing on. Because there's a lot of things that do happen in this life. There are a lot of things in your past. There are a lot of things in your present. And there are times when those things crowd into your heart, into your mind. And you say, I can't move in any direction, much less press on. How will I do that? Well... I feel like we see this every week, but he says it right there in verse 12. I press on to make it my own. In other words, I press on to make him my own. I press on to make Jesus my own. Why? Because he has made me his own. Only let us hold true to what we've already attained. What have we attained? We've been bought with a price. That's what we've attained. We were bought with a price. You cannot get beyond the gospel, even in your pressing on. You never leave it behind. And so the fuel for pressing on is nothing other than the grace of Jesus. Because at the center, at the core, at the, the sum total of pressing on, of knowing Jesus, the whole foundational piece of it is His grace to you. You can do nothing without it. This is why Paul is so passionate with the Galatians when he says to them, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you are now believing another gospel, not that there is another one? 
having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected in the flesh? That's not how it works. I'm reminded of that commercial. It's not how any of this works. I moved toward Him to know Him because of how He moved toward me to know me. I want to know Him because He already knows me. And so I'm enabled and I'm empowered to know Him. I don't strive or press on so that God would be pleased. I strive and I press on because God has said, with you, I am pleased. We love, as John puts it in his letter, because He first loved us. That is the fuel for pressing on. I'm actually rather amazed that I have gone this far in this series about joy without throwing this illustration out. My favorite illustration, my campus minister used to use it, but I loved, I watched this movie growing up. Anybody watch Hook growing up with Robin Williams? I loved this movie growing up. And the favorite, the, the best part of the whole movie Robin Williams plays Peter Pan, but he's a grown-up adult. He's a lawyer. He's forgotten, actually, that he used to be Peter Pan. Um, And what happens is Captain Hook kidnaps his kids so that he'll come back to Neverland and so they can settle their score once and for all or however the story goes like that, right? The interesting thing, though, about the story is that his son, actually in captivity of Captain Hook, begins to forget who he is. Forgets, begins to forget whose son he is, actually begins to believe that he's Captain Hook's son, so much so that he wears the pirate garb. He says things like, hardy har har. Um, he wears the wig. He may, he may even wear the hook. I can't remember. Dresses like him. He has a wig like him. He makes pirate sounds like him. And then there's the final battle in which Peter Pan, he's finally realized he's Peter Pan and he's recaptured his, his magic or whatever and he's there to save his kids. And as he fights... He's talking to his son the whole time. And his son says to Captain Hook, do do I know that man, sir? And this is what Peter Pan says to his son. He says, Jack, you won't believe this, but I found my happy thought. Took me three days to find it, but when I did, up I went. And you want to know what my happy thought was? It was you. And in that moment, his son removes the wig, removes the coat, because he knows who he is. And he's able to join in the fight because of it. This is the point, and this is the point, Paul, and this is why, again, why can there be joy in everything? Why does everything come back to joy? Because it keeps coming back to that. You cannot get away from it. It's not just like the magic band at Disney World that gets you in. It's the lifeblood. Why did Jesus tell a group of people that if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood? Can you imagine how foreign that sounded to those people at that time? We hear it and we're like, oh, communion. They didn't hear that. Because it's the very lifeblood of the Christian. The gospel does indeed tell us that God himself, because of Jesus, because he was broken, because his blood was shed, God himself has declared and decreed for all time. When he looks at you, he says, you see this one here? I am completely satisfied satisfied with this one. I am completely pleased with this one. I am completely happy with this one. In fact... I am enraptured with this one. 
It's that Jesus that comes to us and says to us through the gospel, come on, let's go. Press on. I'm there. I'm with you. And I'm also at the end. You want to know what my happy thought was? It was you. And we read in Hebrews that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. What was the joy? It was you. Don't you want to press on? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want so much to be able to look at our imperfection and our falling short and to know that the gospel empowers us and encourages us and even carries us to press on as we strain forward, as we move forward in this life, knowing that we are being drawn ever upward into you, into your arms, into your love. We pray that this would be evident and true of us tonight. We pray in your name. Amen.